This is Dan Wilson Uncancelled. Let's go. Neil Oliver is tonight's outsider. And more proof today as if we ever needed it that the intolerant far left in this country truly despise everything British. Hysterical high-profile lefties have slammed this spectacular display of 150 Union Jack flags erected on uh, Regent Street in London for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, despicably likening it to Nazi Germany. The truly crazed broadcaster India Willoughby tweeted, when the Queen dies, wouldn't be surprised if Boris appoints himself Fuhrer and assumes total control. That's how close I think Britain is to Nazi Germany. Arch Ramona Femi Olawali wrote, people are getting the wrong end of the stick about all the flags on Regent Street. There's nothing wrong with the flag decorations, no matter how excessive. The issue is what the flag represents. Right now, it represents blatant fascism. It's our job to fix that. And Paul Bernal, who's unbelievably a professor in information technology at the University of East Anglia, quipped, the only things that are missing are the tanks. Neil, Neil, thus seriously comparing a celebration of our wonderful 96-year-old monarch reaching 70 years on the throne to a deplorable regime that gassed millions of people. I mean, is this proof that the far left in this country have finally lost the plot? Well, the one word answer to that is is yes, although I think the people you're talking about lost the plot long ago or may have been born plotless. I thought I looked at the I looked at the picture and I think it looks spectacular. Uh, I think when it comes to flags, as it happens, I think from a from purely from a design perspective, I think the Union Jack is a particularly good flag. Uh, I think it's a particularly brilliant piece of iconography. And I think the effect of the 150 flags there is is so striking. And the tragedy of of, of using language like, like, like Nuremberg in relation to that flag, you know, bef- before there were many uh, uh, forces raised against fascism, Nazism uh, in Europe in, in the 1930s and the, uh, the 1940s. It was the Union flag, it was Britain that, that was an early adopter of the necessity to stand up regardless of consequences and fight back against fascism mm. and Nazism. And the, and the, the Union flag was, was symbolic of that. And there, there's also something deeply strange, hypocritical, that the contempt that's that's reserved for all things British, including the flag, it's it's always and only contempt for the home team and the thing the things that the home team has traditionally held dear. I mean, look how fond so many of the same sorts of people are of the union the, the European Union flag, yeah. for example. Yeah. And that's a, that's a flag that represents not a nation, not a country, not a people, but an, an unelected bureaucracy, an unchallengeable unelected bureaucracy. Or, or look at all the appearances of the Ukrainian flag mm. recently, especially in the social media biogs of the self-righteous. You know, so often the same people 
that say the British flag is a symbol of empire, of colonialism, of nationalism. They can't wait to wave and celebrate someone else's flag, anyone else's flag. So there's a, there is a rank hypocrisy at the base of all this. Indeed, Neil. And I have to say, I was walking down the Mall last night, checking out the preparations ahead of the Platinum Jubilee and looking at all of the flags myself in front of Buckingham Palace. And all I felt was a massive sense of pride. And what was fascinating, Neil, is that all of the voices surrounding me, they, they were all foreign tourists, not speaking English. And they were blown away by it as well. So I think any of these people snaring at Britain are so out of touch because this Platinum Jubilee is going to go around the world. It's going to show that we've finally opened up after two years of lockdown hell while other countries remain caged and muzzled. And I think it's going to be a great thing for this country that we can be proud of regardless of our political stripes. There's a peculiar uh, but symptomatic joylessness about the about a lot of the people who decry uh, pride, love of pride in and love of country. I was listening to Nigel Farage there talking about uh, Nicola Sturgeon and, and the Scottish Nationalists, and there, there's a there's an extreme, there's a profound joylessness around Nicola Sturgeon. She looks like the sort of person where good times go to die. <laughs> and th there's always that. There's always that very, very. joylessness that's there. Yeah. And 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 how empty, how hollow-hearted do you have to be to be in the presence of uh, national pride, not nationalist pride, but but love of country, as is embodied in say a, a grand and colourful display of the flags. How can you be in the presence of that and not feel the you know the corners of your mouth turning up? You know that you know that desire to smile at, at what is, after all, a simple pleasure, and I think it's always worth remembering. I think that where there's a globalist agenda in the background all the time, where there's a desire by some for a, a one-world government and open borders and and all the rest, if you're after a, if it's a world to be run by unelected oligarchs, it makes sense to to encourage or to instill in people a sense of shame in the past, in heritage, in traditions, in predecessors, in the ancestors. Because if you can if you can make people ashamed of the past, yeah. and, and then by association, if you can make them ashamed of the present that they're living in, you make those people rootless. You unmoor them. Yeah. You, you, you take away their, their points of navigation and you leave them adrift with no sense of where they belong and, so and people true. who are people who are who are made rootless with no sense of belonging in that way are then vulnerable to fantasies about a utopian future discard all the things that your parents cared about and your grandparents cared about it was embarrassing and shameful you know trust us follow us and we'll yeah. lead you towards a utopia literally means the place that doesn't exist Indeed. That promised land that demagogues always try to take populations towards. And this confected outrage about a flag, and, and as I say before, the Union Jack flag is a spectacularly good flag. It it, it makes me think sometimes of the of the of the of the uh, the contempt that perpetual adolescents have for their parents. You know, they're embarrassed by mum and dad and they're embarrassed about the things that mum and dad seem to hold dear. And yet at the same time, they're living at home. They're living under that roof and they're taking advantage of all the benefits that mum and dad have worked for. 
and, and traditions that count for something and matter for something. And that, that desire by those people to steer at things that the mass of the population care about, ordinary people, it, it speaks to a narrow ruling class or a narrow urban elite, I don't know exactly what, who just want to sneer at the things that the mass of the British population care about. They love the country. They, they, they love the Queen. They love the traditions and the heritage and all the pomp and ceremony. They love that. And why shouldn't they? Because those are things that make people smile, give them a sense of identity and, and, and remind them that they're part of a bigger story and something that's bigger than themselves. And if you can't look up at 150 flags, you know, flying in the wind over the tops of people smiling and happy, then I, I don't know what's absent from your soul. Well, you make me very proud to be British. Neil Oliver, beautiful analysis as always. Thank you so much. As we speak, the shady World Health Organization is meeting in Switzerland to try and push through an extraordinary pact, giving them unparalleled powers during the so-called next pandemic. But their doomsday director general, Dr. Tedros, isn't yet ready to let COVID be consigned to history where it belongs. What it does is are at their lowest since March 2020. In many countries, all restrictions have been lifted and life looks much like it did before the pandemic. So is it over? No, it's most certainly not over. I know that's not the message you want to hear. Despite that trademark scaremongering, the Craven Health bureaucracy has accepted that COVID has lost its power as a weapon of fear and oppression. So just like cockwork, the monkeypox hysteria arrives via the vacuous wefsels and the compliant MSM, just as the WHO tried to pull off this dangerous power grab. Well, Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford, Carl Hennigan, joins me now. And Carl, you're all about the evidence. You've always been about this evidence throughout this pandemic. So let me ask you, is there any evidence to suggest the World Health Organization deserves more power after their pretty appalling pandering to China during COVID and also lots of other things that they got wrong. Yeah, so Dan, let me declare I, I've received funding from the WHO and give them advice. So, so, so there are some things they do well, for instance, like polio eradication. Yes. But what the key now is in this pandemic is there are lots of criticisms, particularly about this authoritarian control of individuals coming through lockdown. So I think the first thing is, which was in your clip, we haven't called an end to the pandemic. And many viewers might be surprised to say there is no actual criteria for what ends a pandemic. And so this could go on for many years if we're not careful. The second issue, when you do call an end to the pandemic, you need a review. You should be looking at mm. what went well, but particularly what went badly wrong. And I think this is important because when we talk about the lockdown consequences, remember the issue like test, test, test. Well, that cost us 37 billion. Did it get <laughs> us anywhere? And that was directly from the nope. WHO. But if you think in the developing world, lockdown has had catastrophic consequences on education, social welfare. Many African countries have been out of school for 18 months. 
Now, when you've done that, reviewed what's happened, then you should come back to the table and say, here's our changes in effect. But the problem is something odd has happened. The Biden administration in December this year put forward a number of amendments to the international health regulations to change the way we look at pandemic preparedness and acute emergencies. And it's really odd way that has come about rapidly. But actually, there are significant concerns. And I see there's over 145,000 people have signed the petition. So it's going to have to be debated in Parliament now to look at this new treaty, if you like, and look at the implications of it. And do you think we should be as concerned as I feel about this treaty, which feels like a massive power grab by the World Health Organization. Yeah, I think what we should be concerned about is a small number of people, advisors, certain industry, and certain people like the Gates Foundation, who have the major donors to the World Health Organization, using it as a means to soft power to influence what happens next. What we really should be doing is investing the decisions in, in our populations, in our individuals. But I think there's lots of people who actually quite enjoyed lockdowns and would like to get yeah. back to the position where they could have much influence going forward. And I think this is a soft power agenda. Importantly, yes, the government, the UK government, has six months to reject the sovereignty, if you like, of this of these new uh, ratifications. And I think when it gets debated in Parliament, that will be realised. And I think we will say, look, we're not going to cede control to the WHO in this situation, but we are still going to work with them because the UK is one of the major donors and there are important issues that they still need to focus on around the world, like I said, like polio eradication. But, Carl, now they're using uh, this summit in... Switzerland to terrify us all over monkeypox. And Sky News, for example, they broke off their regular programming today to go immediately to this World Health Organization monkeypox press conference. And they're now doing the same sort of tallies about monkeypox as we had about COVID each day. I mean, monkeypox is an existing illness that has been around for a very long time. There's a vaccine, there's treatment. It's not new. Do you feel like folk are getting very hysterical about this? Well, I was reading today about, you know, coming out of the COVID pandemic, about a quarter of all people still surveyed are more anxious than when they went into the COVID pandemic. <laughs> Not so right. number one is I think we're at this heightened awareness. Number two is, I, I, I don't know if you feel, Dan, I, this re reliance on our phone that gives us 24-hour 7 yeah. news. Awful. And we're... Oh, and we're bought into the catastrophizing effect. So I think researchers now, politicians and everybody in the media get to get your attention. We need more doom and gloom. And in doing so, I think we're going to have to get used to this new narrative, which is from all sides creating panic and fear. What concerns me now is over the summer, I think, like, naturally, acute respiratory infections in the Northern Hemisphere will go down. But come September, when schools come back and things start to reemerge, we haven't ended the pandemic. And watch the messaging start coming back again at you. New variants of concern, sub-variants, there'll be problems. So I don't think this is over by any means. And I'd say get ready for more of this messaging going forward. Goodness me. I don't look forward to that, but I know you will keep across it with your evidence-based hat on, and that's why your role is so important. That is Carl Hennigan.
the Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University. In an extraordinary attack today, former SNP leader and First Minister Alex Salmond has accused his former protégé, scheming Sturgeon, of using Scottish independence as a political shield to deflect voters' attention from her government's failures, of which there are many, let's be honest. Salmond's criticism of his former deputy came after Sturgeon announced her delusional plans for a futile push towards Indyref 2, writing in the Scottish National, basically an SNP propaganda sheet at the weekend, Queen Nick declared... We will shortly begin publishing an updated prospectus on the opportunities that independence can offer Scotland, a prospectus that, yes, is upfront about the challenges, but also one that does not shy away from the immense opportunities of independence. Salmon responded brutally by saying, Sooner rather than later, the multiple problems of political delivery of this government, trains, ferries, census, etc., will impact on its support. The cause of independence must not be allowed to suffer from the day-to-day -day troubles of the government. So, Nigel, is Alex Salmon right that Sturgeon is now using independence as sort of a political shield, really? Well, he raises a fair point. I mean, they are failing at virtually everything, education in particular. I remember as a boy, everyone saying that Scotland had the best education system in the Western world. It now has one of the absolute worst, despite this having been stated as one of her clear priorities, but now she's sort of rather conveniently dropped that. Uh, the same goes for health delivery. Uh, you mentioned ferries briefly in the introduction, vast amounts of money being wasted. They are incompetent. They are hopeless. They are useless. Um, so, yes, re-raising the independence issue is, of course, useful to her because that's where the core support comes from. However, here's my real issue with it. It's not independence. Every time in 2014 in that referendum, when I heard mainstream media referring to independence for Scotland, it wasn't. It was separation from UK, separation from London and Westminster, and its replacement by being a tiny little speck in the European Union governed by the French and Germans. And if honestly she wanted a campaign for Scottish independence, I would have some respect, I wouldn't agree, but some respect the integrity of that position. As it is, it is the most enormous con job. And yet, the Conservatives in Scotland, after a brief upward blip, suffered badly on May the 5th in the local elections. The Labour Party, in what was a one-party state of Glasgow and Edinburgh, uh, were found to be so corrupt and so hopeless, they're gone, and there's no way back. So this bizarre situation where... Even if there was a referendum, Indy Ref 2, they'd lose it, probably by a bigger margin than last time, and yet they remain the dominant party in Scotland. It all wants a working out. It really does. Indeed. Also wanting working out, Nigel, is this bizarre juxtaposition that Sturgeon has had to take on foreign policy in an independent Scotland? Because, of course, the SNP, totally against nuclear weapons, right? But have now conceded that they would have to be a member of NATO, which, which just doesn't go together, I'm afraid. Yes, I mean, they want to keep the pound, uh, but of course be separate from the Bank of England. Um, they want to be in NATO, but ditch uh, Trident. I mean, the whole thing is all over the shop. And Salmon, of course, thinks that his Alba party can provide a real challenge. And yet 
if we're honest about it, he hasn't done that well, has he? He hasn't done that well. You know, he was a driving force behind making the SNP a big party, the biggest party in Scottish politics, and yet that vote hasn't transferred on a personal level. Whether that's a result of the endless accusations against him, which, which incidentally, you know, he won his court case over, but somehow she's the queen bee. I want to tell you on a personal level, I've met all the political leaders, uh, you know, over the last 10, 12 years. I've appeared in national debates with them, uh, been in green rooms with them, done big programs with them. Um, I've met leaders from all over the world. I've met the Pope, the Dalai Lama, the US president, the French president, the <laughs> German, Ch I mean, you name it. I've met them all. But I want to tell you this. The single most unpleasant, sour-faced, humorless person of all the people I've met among world leaders is Nicola Sturgeon, bar <laughs> none. I mean, it isn't just that she's wrong, she's deeply unpleasant, and I also think very hypocritical with it too. So, so what, what happened when you met her, Nigel? Oh, I mean, it was June, I think. I've never seen a frost like it, you know, for the middle of summer. <laughs> um, just, I've met her more than once. Uh, there is almost no recognition, no acknowledgement. Um, and I, I remember a few years ago going up to Edinburgh to do an event at which I, and, and at the time, UKIP was riding high in the UK opinion polls. And I wanted to expose the fact that independence wasn't independence. And I was met by um, a group of yobs, a large group of SNP yobs, all with very dilated pupils. I can't think why. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, the way I was treated was just, it, it was appalling. Yeah. And yet, from yeah. Sturgeon or Salmond, they both said, well, you shouldn't have come north of the border. I, I mean, if a group of my supporters had, had hounded Peter Mandelson getting off a train at St Pancras, I would have been the worst person that's ever lived. Oh, yeah. And would part, have been leading the BBC part News. Of problem is an uncritical media. And I, you know, Big time, especially in Scotland. Yeah, Scottish nationalism, lovely. Welsh nationalism, lovely. Irish nationalism, for some reason, no problem. Any hint of English identity and you become a monster. It's weird. So my guess is... She's going to be there for a few years yet. Uh, the scales have not yet fallen from the eyes of the Scottish public. They will. And Salmond is right about that. But it's very hard to see what the alternative is. Indeed. Nigel Farage, brilliant analysis as ever. And, of course, Farage, back at 7pm tomorrow night here on GB News. Thank you so much, Nigel. Dan Wilson here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wilson tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.